Hey, hello, everyone, and welcome to our Seven Investing Podcast, where it's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. You can learn more about our long-term investing approach and see all of our stock recommendations and get started for just $1 at seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. My name is Simon Erickson. I'm joined by my colleague, Seven Investing Lead Advisor, Anuban Mahanti. We're going to be talking about, in this podcast, enterprise software. Uh, we have different industries that we look at when we're make stock, making stock recommendations. And software is one that Anirban and I have looked at quite a bit and made several recommendations in. Uh, but it's not an industry that sits still. It's actually probably one of the most innovative and fast-moving industries that's out there. And so we're going to take a little bit of a, of a nuanced approach of some of the things that are happening in enterprise software today. Anirban, anything you'd like to do to kick us off before we jump into the weeds of enterprise software? Well, nothing. Maybe like, you know... Maybe we can start by defining what we mean by enterprise software, right? And, and typically, you know, the word enterprise refers to large customers with large number or rather clients with large number of employees and so a customer that's going to buy many seats or you know, a large business. But typically, if you think about most of the companies out there today doing enterprise software, they just don't serve only the large customers, right? So like, it, it, like you know, the granddaddy of enterprise software could, you know, you could say Salesforce, for example, is one of them, right? But Salesforce does serve, you know, small businesses, small businesses with say 50 employees or so, and some medium businesses, maybe with those, you know, a few hundred employees or so, right? And they, of course, serve the very, very large uh, businesses, you know, like businesses as large as Alphabet or Apple. Or, I don't know whether they're Salesforce or not, but I'm guessing they are. Uh, and, and that size of uh, customers. So I think enterprise, but if, if, a, if a business, the software as a service type of business has a bend towards, or, you know, the large customers, I would classify them as enterprise. And most of the, uh, you, you'd see the way, easiest way to see this is most large enterprise software companies, even small ones, would disclose um, the annual contract value for large customers. And, and different people define it in, diff in different ways, but I think the most common standard is to assume $100,000 of um, annual contract volume for a customer or more classifies as large. And, and you'd be interested in seeing what fraction of those customers account for the total of the revenue. Right. So I'll kick it off there and pass it off to you uh, to talk about some of the other stuff yeah, that you're interested in when you think you're, yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Salesforce too, because it, it might depend on what decade uh, you're in and who you would consider the quintessential enterprise software. Uh company, right? Like you go back long enough, you, you can remember Oracle. You would send out teams of salespeople. You've got the, the company card and the budget to go out and close these massive deals for custom software you might build for somebody. Then you've got Microsoft, another small company that most of us have probably heard of out there, building these platforms. And you try to get, you know, Office 365 and everybody in the organization's hands. Same thing with Salesforce, you know, as you're selling at enterprise level. Uh, but it's interesting though, Anirban, because cloud computing has kind of brought a new model, a new format for software, we're calling software as a service, where it's entirely hosted in the cloud. It's got very, very low cost. You can actually convince organizations, they're not even convinced, you don't even have to sell them anymore. A lot of times organizations are finding uh, software over the internet and then bringing it back into their group uh, and then scaling it up. And so maybe that's a great segue into the next kind of topic in this conversation is, is the seat-based pricing versus usage-based pricing. Because seat-based, you mentioned that earlier in this conversation too, that, that's kind of like, it doesn't matter how much you're using the software, you just pay a certain amount every month or every year, predefined, right? 
We're recording this on Zoom right now. We have an enterprise license with Zoom that says each member has to pay this much money per month. Nearby, it doesn't matter if we use it for 10 minutes or, or every single day, we're still gonna be paying the same amount. But we've also seen kind of a lot of companies, Splunk, which just got acquired by Cisco, kind of being one of the early ones, that said, you know, we can actually do indexing. Splunk did indexing, but it was something that you could actually track the usage. And it didn't matter if you had a thousand people or you had 10 people using the same amount of capacity of the enterprise software. It's been interesting to see this usage-based software as a service model come into prominence here. That's right. And and and, and I think he, I think this goes hand in hand in hand with also sort of a sales motion that these companies had, right? So in the in the good old day, if you mentioned Oracle, right? You know, you'd sign these contracts, big contracts where, and this would be actually like, you know, a lot of this would be CapEx because you'd be installing machines in a data center, either on, on-prem or private data center, then installing the software, fixing everything up and then getting it all running. <laughs> the move to SaaS basically said, well, you cannot ch- change the, so the CapEx, the sort of the OPEC, <laughs> because you could now decide, well, it's going to run in the cloud and you're going to spend a little bit every year for some number of years. What the companies did not change though in that process was they still wanted this thing, this idea that, you know, I want to get a contract of a certain amount. And then you can use, that's known as like basic committed contracts, right? You commit contracts for three years. I want to spend this much over three years with you. That's sort of a hangover of those good old style um, software days, right? That carried over to this enterprise SaaS style software. And then sort of we have seen over time that you know, even companies that, as you said, usage, right? So that's a new model where you said, instead of saying how many seats I've got, I want to just track usage. And that works really well. If you, for example, you're a database company, you, you, you know, you, you built an underlying database, what you really want to charge people for. And that's how I think the underlying company is getting its cost base served, right? Like it's also hosting it somewhere. There are a number of reads and writes happening. Really, you should be charging based on that. So if your application is really successful or important, you'd get more money from, you know, and you'd also spend more money, right? And you're scaling with that. But even those companies still kept with this model of, you know, we want to get a certain number of contracts signed and have a commitment, right? But it becomes really hard to spend the commitment and have a cadence for that commitment if you are a usage-based model. It works, you know, with a feed-based model, you can almost guess, guess what the cadence is. You know, I've got five seats or 100 seats or 5,000 seats. Your seats are going to probably expand at a certain rate because you know your company is going at a certain rate and therefore you can predict quite easily. It's hard to actually predict what your contract values are going to be over time if you're a usage-based. Because if you have a wildly successful application, the usage should scale and, and your space would scale. Right, so that's, that's another nuance to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the economy right now, the macro and how this is impacting software. Like you said, land and expand model, right? You, you try to get a foot in the door with the customer that hopefully they're going to add more seats to what you're offering to them. Uh, maybe you're offering a, a tangential software that's similar, but it's kind of a, a different than what they're already buying. It's kind of the idea is the same of a lot of these software companies. Land at once and expand the usage over time so your margins can improve. You have to spend as much on sales. Uh, but we've seen some challenging trends here recently, right? Like for one, mm-hmm. um, tech industry as a whole has been laying off a lot of people, hundreds of thousands of people over the last two years. And, um, you know, this has been less IT people to use the products that you might want to be selling to. And then also generative AI, you know, a lot of the coding that used to be done by people that had to go and manually do this is now, you know, you can ask GPT or, you know, whoever else it is, generative AI, 
how do I code this so that it's going to work um, correctly? And nearby, I would really like to hear your perspective on this. I know you have a PhD in computer science. You're kind of like the innovator that's right at the forefront of what's going on in AI. How is this changing the whole industry out there? Yeah, so I think you hit, you know, so the layoffs are happening. And, and so the way I sort of read the layoffs is, so you know, if you read the commentary from some of the largest companies, for example, like what Alphabet is saying, it's being positioned largely as a cost engineering effort or, you know, re-engineer the cost base. And I think that makes sense because I think a couple of things here, as you talk about the macro, you know, we, we were in sort of a zero interest rate, a very low interest rate environment for a very long time. And then we sort of went to a very high interest rate environment. And we're probably going to settle somewhere between that zero and a high interest rate environment. And I think that the zero interest rate environment basically meant you can go for costs, you can go for growth at any cost and people were just hiring left, right and center. And large companies became even very bloated. They had a lot of layers of middle management coming to play. What this cost engineering base is, it's not about getting rid of um, getting rid of people who are actually doing the engineering. Actually, those people are still getting hired. It's just getting rid of a lot of middle management. And what happens is if you have a lot of middle management, these are senior people, well, you know, they probably don't want to go back to doing 100% full-time coding. So, you know, they basically are getting rid of those people and they maybe are finding other places to work or setting up their own companies and things like that. And, uh, and then I guess the other thing to realize here is, you know, I personally think that what's happening with Gen AI is Gen AI is, is finding its footing in enterprise. Like people are using it, right? So Salesforce has products used based on Gen AI. Uh, ServiceNow has products based on Gen AI. Um, you know, you have co-pilots that are based on Gen AI. I think these are productivity tools that are adding productivity for existing employees. I don't think that we should, I personally don't think that any of these layoffs are actually connected to Gen AI. Most of the layoffs are about re-engineering the cost base to create operating leverage in companies. Like, you know, how does a company like Salesforce, for example, go from zero operating leverage to having a huge amount of operating leverage? It's because they're not growing the cost base and they're actually re-engineering the cost base. That's what um, Alphabet is working on as well. And, and you can sort of see that in, uh, in the stock-based comp, right? Like, I mean, Alphabet, for example, is doing a lot of buybacks, but a third of those buybacks are basically going, exactly a third, that's crazy. The third of that buyback is actually just offsetting as we see, right? Whereas you compare that with a company like, say, Apple, it's only one-tenth of that SBC of that buyback is going towards SBC, right? So I think there's a re-engineering of cost base in a lot of these companies uh, in the software land. I've just seen that, and I think that's what was happening. Um, it mostly tried to get more productive. It mostly tried to get rid of middle management. It's trying to get, you know, it's trying to prioritize. So, for example, large companies like Alphabet, you're hearing the word, we are Get to, we are focusing on our highest growth, highest opportunity ideas. Previously, it was okay to bat for anything that you could thought could be a moonshot. Now it's no longer okay to bat for so many different moonshots. You want to focus and prioritize. So I think that's what's going on. And and that's and and I guess the final point would be, um, you know, the, the sales environment is difficult, right? And you know, it's it's just what it is. You know. It, Money is no longer cheap, and therefore sales environment is difficult. Everybody is actually checking how much they're spending. Yeah, I would agree with all of the above. And everybody, you know, if you go back just a couple of years, twenty twenty one, nobody was even looking at margins. You know, in zero zero interest rate environment, like you said, it's like how fast is the top line growing? 
and uh, you yeah. know, are you, are you getting positive cash flow? The rest is is fine. You know, no one's no one's caring about the gap mm-hmm. numbers. Everyone's just saying, what is the adjusted you know, numbers? He can pay as much stock as he wants to. And and I think that we have seen kind of a retrenchment in the whole industry. You mentioned Google, but certainly other companies too have kind of cut back on that upper management level. Another example is Twilio, Twilio Enterprise Software. We get outside of enterprise software, just look at software. I mean, Snap, Snapchat has cut oh, yeah. back on a lot of its kind of growth projects. Even Meta, you know, who's now paying a dividend, had really good results, but they have really become much more conscious about the uh, the bottom line rather than just the, the top line growth. And I think that is a function of the sales cycle. I think that is a function of the macro environment that we're in. Yeah. Quickly, to, you know, one of the interesting things here with enterprise software is, you know, like a lot of the users for enterprise software is also the tech. And as they cut back on the number of people that they've got, it does affect those sales, right? So there's, there's a, like, there's, there is this cycle. Yeah. And, and, and that's true. As you, and I, I guess this feeling of being um, cost conscious as it percolates through the entire industry. I mean, there is that cycle that, you know, Everything has got to grow at a little bit slower pace because people just are not going to be adding as many people as they were adding in the past. And that does impact seed-based models more than I think usage-based models. Because if you've got a really great product for which the usage is just, you know, just for example, database, if you're switching from say Oracle databases to, or building new applications in say MongoDB, then if your application is really important, well, MongoDB would see its share of usage client. Yeah, and, and everybody, one, one final question on this one before we move on to the next the next segment. But you know, is there a certain level of scale that once a company gets to, um, maybe it's not as vulnerable to a longer sales cycle, right? Like even though we are or, or number of seats or number of employees that it has, right? Sales Salesforce, Microsoft, you know, both of them have done layoffs in the last couple of years, but they've also got stock prices that are incredibly, incredibly well. Maybe because they've got a, a stronger foundation and cash on the books to ride out the cycle like this? Or why does it seem like the big keep doing better and getting bigger and having trillion dollar market caps? Or you've got a lot, of, a lot of other ones that really are struggling right now. Yeah, so that's a great point. And you know, like you come back to something that you, you talk about a lot, right? Um, is like, you know, it's one thing to be at a hundred million dollar run rate. It's another thing to be at a half a billion dollar run rate. It's another thing to be at a billion dollar run rate. And it's a completely different ball game to be at a $10 billion rate, run rate. And from there to be at 20, 50, it's each, like each doubling is just incredibly odd, right? You know, 500 million to a billion is one game, but a billion to 2 billion is another game and 2 billion to four and so on. So I think that's scale. And then ultimately there's a lot of scale in these things, right? Uh, incremental cost for that software is basically zero, right? So if you're, you know, and once you've got the customer, really your Salesforce can go and get new customers because the existing customers just going to continue using it. So I think that, and then you generate plenty of cash uh, on the book, which allows you to, you know, spend, you know, on sales and marketing and then just word of mouth, uh, you know, you become the industry standard. So I think scale matters. Uh, with, with reference to companies like Salesforce, I find Salesforce super interesting because if you look at what has happened to this company in the last six, six, seven quarters, they've just basically, this company used to spend all this cash in buying companies. And it's just turned, it's just got to this discipline where this discipline has meant Tremendous cash flows, right? Like it generated nine billion. I think it's training free cash flow number. That's just insane. And and the reason the stock prices are doing well is that when when the market sees oh you're generating so much free cash flow, and your stock uh, comps stock based comps are actually not you know impacting that much to the dilution when you add this buybacks, these stocks actually might some of them might be cheap. But the, the valuation is you know 
Instant marketing is just rewarding the fact that, oh, okay, you know, if you continue on this path, even if you grow the scene, not 10%, you keep buying back your stock. It's just, a, you know, it's just that formula that over the long term, you should just do well, right? And the markets are still pretty big for some of these companies. So, um, yeah, so I think that's the thing that getting to scale is very hard. And a lot of these companies that have been operating with operating losses, but still seeing leverage, which is, as you said, okay, in the past is no longer okay. You just to, to keep growing and diminish your operating leverage, what you really want is to keep growing and expand operating leverage and the operating leverage needs to be positive, right? Um, so you need to get a scale. I think billion dollars in my mind is a really good cutoff for it. Like, you know, if you get to billion dollars and can still say grow at 20%, that's really like, I mean, that means that you're getting some good traction. That's just my mental model. Uh, you know, you can always you know, give or take a bit. Well, once you get to scale, you also certainly start attracting some suitors, which is why we're going to talk in this next section about acquisitions and valuations. And everyone, I've got some of the largest acquisitions, numbers right in front of me here, of what's been going on in recent years. Go back in time, five years, 2018. Microsoft, oh, six years almost now. We're in 2024, so okay, six years ago. Yes. Microsoft buys Git, GitHub uh, for $7.5 billion, right? Want to get it open source. Uh, one year later, IBM follows suit, also wants to get into the open source arena acquires Red Hat for $34 billion. Uh, the year after that, 2020, Salesforce then acquires Slack for $28 billion. And then just a couple of years later, we saw last year, in 2023, Cisco acquires Splunk for $28 billion. And everything's are huge numbers. Why are companies spending so much money on these mega acquisitions rather than trying to build these platforms themselves? Well, okay. So first, some of these, like some of these softwares, uh, services and applications, they have significant scale, right? So it's the, it's the land and expand thing, right? If you have multiple products and you have more things to sell, you have more ways. So you, you an example might be, so Salesforce acquires Slack and, um, you know, Slack has some customers who, for example, might not have say MailChimp, but they might be actually worthy customers to be buying MailChimp or sales cloud or service cloud and things like that. Or it's the reverse way, right? You know, they might be, Having customers who've got sales cloud and service cloud, but don't have Slack, but probably could use Slack. I think it's that. Um, it's, I mean, if that's on this list, you know, I was just, I was just laughing along this, and, you know, that it just seems like GitHub was probably the best buy of the lot. It's all oh, these look very expensive. Uh, and I think that's why Salesforce waited, uh, you know, for the peak to the bubble to burst. Maybe Slack would have been acquired for like five billion. <laughs> Who knows, you know? Um, yeah, some of these look really expensive, but like I have, I don't think many of these are going to get written down, written down from a, you know, from an accounting perspective, because they'll still be making pretty good sales and they'll still be growing pretty quickly. Right. Um, which then, you know, you, you could say that, you know, the valuation was okay. That was not great, you know, except for maybe GitHub and GitHub is a smart acquisition for Microsoft because it has other value add, right? Because the GitHub brings you a code database, which you can then use for something like a co-pilot to help you code better, right? And, you know, so there is other benefits. There are other benefits to having these things. It's just, you know, like, for example, data benefits, right? The same sort of thing goes for Salesforce. Like Slack gives you immense amount of data on which you can build AI applications, right? Brings in another feed of data. So, you, you know, I don't know much about this Red Hat IBM acquisition that I can't really... Uh, make a good case for, but for some of the other ones, there's, there's not just an expansion of clients or customers. It's there's data advantages, network effects, and you know data network effects, for example. 
that come into play. Yeah, it's interesting because um, there's there's a lot of uh, brunt of jokes that goes on around software acquisitions, right? Like we we talked about this a little bit in the last podcast we filmed of HP spending, you know, what was it, $11 billion on autonomy, writes down $10 billion of it within the next year. It just seems like there's a bigger sucker uh, kind of at play in, in this industry of like who gets too excited about the next sexy, shiny object that they pay too much for and then they have to write down. But counteracting that, though, you've got some companies that do it really, really well, right? To avoid saying Salesforce ten, too many more times in this podcast, I mean, you've got Constellation Software. They go out there, they serial acquire. They've done very, very well for their shareholders with this with the same formula. Um, you've got others like Roper Technology. That's kind of, you know, you keep building in this base of very, very hard, high return on invested capital companies that kind of build from the ground up. And I would say that, you know, if you've got the formula right and, and you've been methodical, uh, it's almost a cultural thing. You know, are, are you good at this? Are you good at making acquisitions and bringing into this larger platform, which you hope still fulfills that same land and expand, right? You want to bring somebody in that is... Uh, that is that you you'd be interested in selling your existing customer base to, and it's not something you're already doing, uh, but you also don't want to overpay for it too. Um, I, I guess I, I guess maybe as somebody who sizes up these companies in your bond, all of the things considered, are you excited about you know Salesforce going out there and spending twenty eight billion dollars for for Slack, and or you're excited about Cisco going out there and spending twenty eight billion dollars for for Splunk? Is this awesome when you make these big acquisitions, or would you rather see them kind of try to build this from the ground up? I know. So I'm not excited at all about these large acquisitions. They don't, you know, uh, they don't, you know, make me get nice fluffy feelings and things like that. Actually, you know, um, I'd much rather them build this ground up, right? I, I'm I'm a big fan of tuck-in acquisitions. You know, a company that we've not talked about, for example, ServiceNow, they don't make huge acquisitions, right? They, they you know, buy tech, they buy talent, right? So most of the growth technically is organic. Right? I'm a much bigger fan. Apple, uh, you know, I'm a much bigger fan of buying small things and then building based on that. Then you can just get it can immense amount of value that way. Um, the Salesforce, I would say, has been a good acquirer. This this one though, this is a head scratcher, the Slack one. Um, they've done, you know, it, like MuleSoft was a great acquisition, Tableau was a great acquisition, but this this one, Slack, especially the amount they've paid, just looks like a head scratcher. But no, no, we're a big fan of, fan of that. At all, I think it's much better to acquire small things. I much lower chances of um, going wrong. Yeah. And let's chat about that as well, too, because if you're not a company that just got $30 billion lying around your balance sheet, uh, there is another, another exit strategy for a lot of these companies, which is private equity. And private equity, of course, certainly is, is much more um, scrutinizing about valuations and how much they're going to pay because of the model that they have. But we have seen some companies that do this quite consistently, right? One example is Toma Bravo. Spelled mm -hmm. like Toma, it looks like it's Thomas minus, <laughs> but Toma Bravo is, is kind of one of those quintessential private equity companies, likes to go out there and make software acquisitions. Some large, some small. Uh, just to kind of take a look at some of them that they've made, October 2021, they buy Medallia for $6.4 billion, this enterprise software company, bought Anaplan for $10 billion in 2022, then bought Koopa software for six billion in December 2022 as well. So okay, if you're if maybe let's talk about valuation now, Anirvan, because it seemed like you know a lot of those companies I mentioned earlier, the big the big big acquisitions were taking place 2020, 2021, zero interest rate environment, money is plentiful, fine, go out and do a 30 billion dollar acquisition. But maybe when interest rates went up and it got a little bit harder to sell out there, it seems like some of these software companies. 
that had founders at the helm that were doing very well, were, were growing like gangbusters years ago. They slowed down a little bit. And then the temptation is there to take the money and sell out to private equity. Uh, what do you think about this? Is this something that's always on the table? What's your thoughts about valuations and, and buyouts from private equity firms? Yeah, so uh, let me take the buyout stuff first because I think it's super interesting the stuff you mentioned. And I think there's, there's an interesting angle there, which is the regulatory angle. Um, yeah, I think like more buyouts are now going to be possible by a private equity route than by, say, a large tech company acquiring them, right? I think, especially because if you need regulatory clearance out of Europe, then they have sort of, you know, the European regulatory landscape basically has made certain companies, uh, you know, persona non grata. And, and, and what is funny about that is, and I think Microsoft is no longer persona non grata, so they can get away with an Activision Blizzard type of um, uh, acquisition, but an Amazon can't even buy an iRobot, right? Which I think is, 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 is pretty funny. Um, so I think those bigger companies, some of them, so Apple, Google, Amazon, um, I, I think, and Meta, these guys are not going to be restricted to buying small ones. Microsoft might still for some time get away with buying some big ones, but which basically means the field for certain-sized companies are only going to be now open for either sort of lower down, so the sales forces and the oracles and IBMs of the world, or to um, uh, to private equity, which means for some large companies, the multiples that you might see for acquisitions might actually not be that large because there are less fewer competitors in my mind. Uh, that's what uh, people are paying lower multiples. That's kind of obvious. The multiples have sort of started expanding a little bit because people are thinking the interest rate, as we talked about, you know, a week or two back, interest rates are on a path to going down. Although March rate cut, Powell has said is unlikely to happen. Uh, maybe it's going to be no. And, and, and it's only going to be maybe, you know, they're thinking about three rate cuts this year. Maybe you get four, but you're not going to get six. Um, and then three and a US Fed uh, rate cuts. So I think the valuations are coming back up, but they're, no long, they're nowhere near the, the peak for the pandemic. So that, that's the other thing to keep in mind. And uh, some companies which have seen growth slow down, Twilio is a great example, where sort of post-pandemic growth has slowed down, valuation has sort of contracted, SBC is really eating into returns. Those companies have seen valuations compress, like you know, so Twilio, Okta are great examples where the growth has slowed down and the valuations have totally compressed. Um, so again, but no suitors have arrived yet for those companies. Um, so I think, I think we might see um, a few things happen. We might see that some companies that are not getting acquired, they will be looking to cut more workforce and probably uh, jettison non-core stuff to raise cash and become more lean and focused. I think that's the other thing that we're likely to see that. But yeah, I would think that private equity interest would be pretty high right now. Yeah, I'd agree. One other uh, some context I'd like to add to that too is that you're, if, you're looking, if you're a private equity investor, you are looking at different things than a lot of individual investors are for these software companies, right? right? A couple of years ago, everyone was just talking about price to sales. We were totally fine with paying 45 times sales for Zoom video communications. I remember this. I remember the market just being so excited about the growth rate of that company. Of course, that didn't work out so well. But if you are a private equity investor or even an investor, you know, in this market that we're in right now, you're much more interested in things like EV to EBITDA, uh, enterprise value divided by EBITDA, maybe, maybe EV to gross profit. It's not just the top line sales gross anymore. It's actually kind of like how actually profitable is this business? And I know that's something you've looked at a lot in Nirvana, you know, the stuff that you put out for seven investing. 
it's not just price to sales and we just write it off like it's okay. You're actually being much more uh, methodical and scrutinizing, you know, how profitable these businesses actually are. Yeah, like, I mean, one thing I, I you know, it's good to own up to is it's very difficult, you, you know, like when things, you know, when the interest rate environment is zero, it's very easy to also justify a 40 tax multiple for things because you like, you just extend things out and, you know, and, and that, and, and zero interest rate environment is not necessarily just, you know, a lower discount rate and things like that. It also, because the money is so free, money is coming into these companies and these companies are actually going fast at that point, right? It's like, it's a, it's a double sugar hit, um, right? You get that high growth rate and you basically discount less. And so, you know, yeah, it's like, I mean, you know, uh, I've held through Filio being at 60 times the sales and I justified somehow in my own mind that, oh, it's okay. And, you know, this company is still at this rate growing at 40% or 50% at that time, which is, which is you know, again, um, but we are sort of at the opposite end of the spectrum right now. But, yeah, like, I mean, we, uh, at least I personally look at, you know, I prefer looking at a DCF, the reverse DCF stand model, which we've talked about before. Uh, which gives you a much better insight into sort of how the free cash flows are going and what sort of is being embedded uh, into the price and does it make sense or not. Um, you know, we look at other things. We look at how big the market is and how sort of the company is going around tackling that market, right? And, um, you know, different companies have different opportunities there. Um, yeah, so we try to be more methodological, but, you know, it's not, you know, I'm not, we're not, unfortunately not infallible. I've, you know, I said I've held true. Uh, you know, twenty of being five hundred percent gain in my own personal portfolio to be a loss, right? And these things happen, and it's just part and parcel of being an investor. Unfortunately, always good to be humble, uh, Nirbal. But you've also made some excellent picks in the software space. We're going to talk about some of those in, in just a minute. Uh, we're going to talk about the super apps and if the big get bigger. And Ross, I'd like to touch base on that that re reverse DCF in just a moment. Right before we get to that, though, uh, we do have a sponsored read for our podcast today. Hello, seven investing listeners. You might know public.com as the all-in-one investing platform. Now they've launched options trading, and with it, they're doing something that no other brokerage has done before. Public is sharing 50% of their options trading revenue directly with you, the customer. So whenever you trade options on public, you get something back. And of course, there's no commission or per contract fees either. By sharing 50% of their options revenue, you'll know exactly how much you make from your options trades because public is literally giving you half of it. In other words, there's a more transparent to options with no fees and you get something back on every single trade. So go to public.com and activate options trading by March 31st to lock in your lifetime rebate. One more disclosure, this was paid for by public investing and you must activate your options account by March 31st for the revenue share to apply. Options are not suitable for all investors and they carry significant risks. Full disclosures are in our podcast descriptions, and this is for U.S. members only. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anirban, before we jump in a little bit more, I wanted to double click on something you said, which was inverse DCF or reverse mm. DCF. Maybe everyone's not familiar with what a discounted cash flow is or what an inverse discounted cash flow mm. model is. Can you explain that a little bit about why you do that? So like a discounted cash flow is a sort of traditional way of looking at this, like valuations, right? So um, a company is basically worth the discounted sum of the free cash flows you think it will make in the future, right? And the future by definition is unpredictable, but we can, you know, we can look at what's happened in the past and we can sort of think how the margins are going to move and we can make a prediction about how uh, the future is going to unfold and we can come up with some ideas of what, what the free cash flow is. Now, and, and, and once you know what the free cash flow is, you can discount it by a discount rate, which would typically take into account, like, you know, the risk of investing in the, in a, investing in the public market. So it's, uh, you consider the base uh, U.S. Fed interest rate. Uh, you might consider the cost of capital uh, in, in this mix. You know, you might, there are different ways of doing it, but you know, you, you, you discount it back. So, and people typically would model explicitly maybe five or ten years, and then have a terminal growth rate attached for year eleven onwards. Right. So you assume something like you know that from eleven onwards, the company is going to be basically forever growing at say two percent. It's free cash flow. It's basically some sort of GDP level growth, right? Uh, or a little bit more than that. Or in, in inflation plus. Let's call it. If the inflation target is 2%, you know, you could assume 3% is a pretty good number uh, to think for the growth rate. So that's what a typical model would do. Now, one of the things, this is a great way of doing it and a great way of, so for example, you recently shared a model for a company called Wolf uh, that where you actually built it out. And now, people don't understand this. I want to point this out. Is you one somebody looking at it from the outside might get caught up with all the details that are there and and the precision that is there. But the whole point of doing this model for somebody like Simon would be to understand the various levers that the company has, and you know what you if you change this, what happens? If company changes that, what happens? It's a way to understand the business. Right. And the valuation numbers you get, I think a byproduct of that, but it gives you, you know, it, it, it's a DCF done in detail, gives you an understanding of the mechanics of the company. And it's a great way to actually understand the business. Um, so, so I think I, I want to point that out. And then, you know, don't get caught up on the details because my, my favorite quote for this is all models are wrong. Uh, so tell me the model is wrong because it's a model. <laughs> uh, well, but what I'm going to tell you is you can learn something about that business. You're really interested in that business and you get a lot of handles and you'll understand what are the handles of the business. And then you can track business progress against those handles over time. So that's the model. I do that sometimes, but it's an incredibly time-consuming exercise, right? And it's really useful if you want to understand a business for the first time. That's a really useful exercise to do. Or if your business is really early stage and you want to sort of understand how it might shape up over time, what are the, you know, in the bull cases and the bear cases for it, I think it's really incredibly useful. Um, I remember somebody shared a, a 
discounted free cash flow. I'm, I'm going on a tangent for a company called Afterpay, which was one of the first inventors of buy now, pay later. And I looked at it and I said, whoa, this looks crazy. Uh, but you know what? But they were right about it because it didn't play out according to their bull case. And this, you know, the company got acquired by Block or Square uh, for some gazillion uh, amount of dollars, which at that time, you know, they, when they did it, it was probably a sub $1 billion company, but acquired for like 20 or 30 billion or something like that. So, you know, it was a huge multiplier. So that gives you that idea of what can happen uh, upside and downside. Now, my more preferred model is to do sort of the opposite of that, which is the reverse DCA, where, and this really works for companies which have some free cash flow right now. So I start with the free cash flow now, and then I explicitly try to find out what is the implied growth rate for the next decade. That's my model of doing the inversion. And you can do it in different ways, but this is the simplest way of doing it. And then just basically assume a terminal growth rate going forward after year 10, year 11 onwards. So if I say 3% terminal growth rate for the free cash flow, start with the year zero free cash flow. And then basically assume a discount rate that I think is appropriate. And then basically just solve for the, um, the growth rate that the market is expecting for the free cash, right? And then I basically look at that, you know, which gets my the current share price of the current. So it basically says the current share price is fair if after year 10, the business is growing at a terminal rate and this is the discount rate. This is the implied growth rate for free cash flow, right? And then I just basically look at that and that gives me a lot of ideas because it tells me whether I think, for example, at a very high level, I could make the judgment as to whether or not I think the company can best it, do better than that, or would not be able to deliver that, an example, right? Um, the other thing that you can do is for big, big free, free cash flow generators such as Salesforce and uh, say Apple, what, what often people get caught up is, you know, you think of the top line and you say, oh, Apple is only growing at 2% or 3%, right? but then you're ignoring what's happening in the bottom line and what's happening below that top line number. So you can see that, you know, margins are expanding, free cash flow is still growing. And then if you even have a modest growth to that free cash flow, you realize, oh, that this company can go from like $110 billion of free cash flow now to maybe 220, 230 billion free cash flow, the very modest growth assumptions over 10 years. But then you just add up all that free cash flow number and you say, well, what is it? Free cash flow is after the business has invested everything it needs for its business, right? What is it going to do with all that number? It's going to buy that stock. So if you, you know, if it's going to have generate, say, trillion plus dollars of free cash flow, it would buy back potentially a third or 25% of the company. Well, you can account for that too in the stock price. And so it allows for those, those sort of insights and or you can make even insights such as my year 10 free cash flow needs to be this much for it, for the current valuation to be justified. Do I think that margin is ever possible? Or if I assume very healthy margin, what does the, what does the revenue look like? And sometimes you look at that for a software company and say, oh, there's no way I think this company can get to that revenue. It, it's just, you know, or you could say, oh, that's a revenue very few companies have actually achieved. Right, so ten billion dollars of software revenue, for example, just to give put a number, uh, it's very hard. Not many companies have actually gotten to ten billion dollars. You look at hand counted uh, number of companies that have got ten billion dollars plus of software revenue. Right, so if your model requires you your company to be actually delivering more than ten billion dollars of revenue, even in a decade from now, account for inflation, and everything, your company better be very special. 
Yeah, That's a special pump. It's fantastic. I, I really like it. I, I think that one, it keeps you out of trouble, right? It keeps you out of just paying a price to sales where you're not doing enough diligent research, actually looking at, you know, the cash flows of the business, not just the top growth might steer you away from some of the landmines out there. And then also, like you said, all models are wrong, but you can also be directionally correct and just see something that's out of sync with the market. The market is not, don't take it, accept it that the market is always right. The market is inefficient on a lot of things. If you find something that's out of sync based on what you expect the performance to be, it's a great way, great tool to use. Um, moving on, and a reminder before we get into this, that uh, all of the companies we are uh, talking about here are not necessarily recommendations of ours. Uh, we might have positions in them personally, but if you do want to see all of our actual recommendations, uh, the official recs, that is, uh, the stock picks of 7investing, please sign up at 7investing.com slash subscribe, and then check out our entire scorecard, 7investing.com slash recommendations. Get started for just one single dollar and see all of them, including all of the Nirvana software picks. Uh, but that said, disclaimer out of the way, Nirvana, let's talk about a couple companies. You, you've mentioned so much about free cash flow. I know that a lot of companies you like are those ones that have already gotten to scale, right? Billion dollar run rate or more, whatever it might be, already throwing out free cash flow. And we're kind of calling these super apps now, right? It's the companies that have gotten big enough. They maybe have made acquisitions of other companies or they're international, but we're kind of, they've got these, these platforms that have just gotten big and they're so embedded with the customers that they have. One that you've mentioned a lot of times, and actually let's do a two that you mentioned a lot of times, is ServiceNow and then Cloudflare. Uh, what is so appealing about these companies? I know that you talk about them all the time on 7investing, but what draws you to these companies that are already so large? Yeah, so so Cloudflare uh, not that large compared to ServiceNow. ServiceNow is probably like a $150 billion company. Cloudflare is probably like a $20 billion company or $25 billion company, something like that. So but ServiceNow is very interesting because ServiceNow, as you said, it's basically like a super app. They enable different workflows to talk to each other, right? So you might need, uh, you, you know, you might have, say, tickers um, for service being generated, you know. Um, you could use a different different sort of software to, you know, manage, um, let's say, IT help desk requests, right? But you could then take those requests and automate, you know, what the responses are going to be or how it, say, talks to other parts of, other software, right? You integrate that. And that's sort of what ServiceNow does, really. It enables different applications to talk to each other, automates things for you across each other. And in that sense, it becomes what is like, essentially is super app because it's the ground where basically all these digital apps that, you know, applications that the enterprises use meet. Men doing a lot of work with Gen AI, so they actually have got these, what they call the Pro Plus, um, you know, uh, units or services or SKUs, they like, they like to call it, but uh, you know, Code Plus, I, I just call them products. Uh, they, you know, they're off to a great start and they're all based on a company that they acquired, a small company called Element AI. Uh, so they acquired the team. I think it's the Canadian company that they acquired. And, and they sort of embedded that into solutions. And those are off to a great start. They've never seen such good uptake to new software release. Uh, so that's pretty promising. Um, Cloudflare, it's interesting how you, you've actually bundled them together. Cloudflare is interesting as well because it's, it's like, it's a super app, but for networking, really. Like, it's, it's a networking company, right? So, it, it live started from, you know, hosting or basically doing caching for content, right? Um, and then they did, like, you know, they do reverse DNS and then they basically provide performance for 
your services or your websites that you host, right? That was sort of the origin of the company. But from the sort of they built, and one of the things that they did is they went and built this network of um, applications and hardware that are very close to users and, and basically what's called a point presence across the globe. So, that, you know, at points of presence across the globe, they've got their computers and they've got uh, their hardware and their software running, and then they can deploy code on it. It sort of allows them to deliver services to customers at good latencies and do it cheaply. Right. So, you know, you get, you get some of the benefit of both worlds. So, so they've sort of migrated from, you know, they've sort of expanded from there to, you know, so in addition to providing networking type services, so they can provide you like a private network, they can provide you, um, you know, um, let's say carry across different networks, they can provide you, you know, all sorts of different things. In addition to that, they can provide you private internet access. Uh, they can do, you know, what like basically, you know, um, zero trust services and things like that. So let's sort of expand it from there to sort of security, right? So it used to be used for firewalls and stuff, but they can do more than that now. Um, so that, so that was sort of the expansion and sort of the basis for that, the fundamental basis for that company. So it's in, this interesting. So the way I sort of look at it is networking has always been uh, a hodgepodge of devices and software. And they've sort of moved it more to networking as a service. So I think that's the higher level pitch is they're networking as a service company and networking could mean anything from sort of network services, performance of, you know, service, performance of your websites and your applications to network security. So that's sort of expanded there. Uh, it's a pretty pricey stock though. Uh, and, and, and a lot of so good news is priced. But again, this is one of those things that can grow if they can sort of execute on that vision because network as a service vision means you could provide this potentially to a large number of companies. And then they're sort of migrated from there to being an edge computing service, uh, you know, so doing instead of being centralized cloud computing can move things to the edge. That's been a sort of, you know, a dream in, um, in academic world for a long time. Right. So doing edge computing, you know, you do most of your computing at the edge and then you host it, you know, and then you pass it on, it reduces latency. Now, I think that the big thing to remember there is there's a, there's a strong debate now. Do you really need edge computing because your actual edge computer is your iPhone or your Android smartphone, right? Because you've got pretty strong processing power on device, so, right? So why do you need edge computing? So there's a, there's a lot of debate there, uh, but maybe for some applications, the latency factor still comes into play. And, and is important. So I think it's a very interesting company and uh, a very interesting CEO to watch. Uh, colorful CEO has a lot of opinions. Um, so yeah, I, I like that company. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, as, as we close this out here, but I think one, one more topic I want to talk about is, um, you know, we mentioned kind of kind of the, the, the size of these companies is all over the map. And it, it kind of depends on how big the addressable market is and then how big these companies re really can get. Uh, several of them that we mentioned on this show already today, we mentioned Microsoft earlier. That's a $3 trillion company, right? We also mentioned uh, Salesforce several times, $275 billion company. We just mentioned ServiceNow, $160 billion company. And then as you mentioned, Cloudflare is smaller, but still a leader in its smaller, maybe niche market that it's in, $30 billion company. But we've also talked about other companies too. Paycom Software has been another one we've talked about before, about a $10 billion company. Zoom Info, that's another one we put on people's radar here recently. $10, $10 billion company. Um, how do you think about 
the addressable market size and how large a company can get. And maybe if I could take that one step further to ask this question of, it seems like we see these, these companies gaining momentum, gaining traction. You've got a go-getter, you know, CEO, visionary, founder, or whatever it is. And then they get to scale. And like you said, it's much, much harder to sell at $100 billion or $100 million than it is at $1 million. And then a billion dollars and then $10 billion. And every step of the way, it kind of requires you to look at different things. But it's also hard to compete against larger companies too, right? If you're a cybersecurity company now, you're up against Microsoft who wants to do cybersecurity. It might be hard for you to maintain your competitive advantage or whatever niche you have. How do you think about this in your part? Are we going hunting for just the really largest of the largest companies because they're the safest? Or do you go out there after those five, $10 billion market cap companies uh, who might have a little bit more risk because they're up against some of the bigger fish in the same, in the same pond? Like, I, I would say, like, I think there's no either or here because, like, I mean, you, you could win both ways, right? Like, I mean, some of the biggest winners in the, in the market have been these large companies, right? Uh, you know, the $500 billion companies becoming $3 trillion companies. That's a six-figure with presumably lower risks, right? So I think there's no either or. I think, like, the way I think about this is if you're a big company and you provide services that people love, and applications that people love or, you know, you just must have, it's very difficult to displace that company, right? And I think a business that tries to displace these type of companies usually does not succeed. They, you know, and that's just my view. Like, you know, like you take an example of, like if, if you're going to do wearables and you want to compete with Apple, it's not going to work out. It's going to be very hard. Going to be difficult. You might sue Apple. You might complain about it. You might go to various regulatory bodies. You do whatever you want. Or if you, for example, you're you know your streaming service, uh, like an audio streaming service, and you want to compete with Apple, Google, Microsoft, or, or Apple, Google, Amazon, how is it that going to work out? Because the the stuff that you're going to sell is a commodity, uh, right? You're selling Taylor Swift's music. Either you have to be exclusive and therefore you have to pay a boatload to Taylor Swift, or you're going to have the same deal as everybody else and they can subsidize it and you can't. Basically, if you've got a bad business model, that bad business model on opportunity of surviving inside a really, really strong company because customers still want it and they're only willing to pay a small delta for it, right? Uh, Peloton uh, is another example, right? I mean, it's just some business models are just very hard. So I think that's the, my lens to it is that and that's funny, for example, you talk about, you mentioned Zoom many times. My issue with Zoom has been just that, like we use Zoom, but I mean, you, you know, if, if you're an enterprise and, and, you know, Microsoft is selling your teams and it's coming for free along with everything else, it's hard to fight against free and it might just be good enough, right? And, you know, if someday you know, FaceTime becomes available and I'll be using FaceTime and maybe many companies would want to use FaceTime and if FaceTime was interoperable, that would be again competitive pressure, right? So um, I, th I just so I think of that. So that that is very important. That doesn't mean though that you can't have step change, right? So one of the things that can happen in technology is a step change. For example, it's very hard to compete against Oracle with traditional relational databases, but it is possible to compete against Oracle if your database does something different and does it better than Oracle. And therefore, you can slowly take either market share and stuff that Oracle is not good at, and then over time hope to get solved Oracle's share. And then all you need is really to get a little bit of that share, right? 
for a small company to be big. And then as you become bigger, then your ambitions might become bigger. So that's sort of a step change or is, is something that, you know, you watch for. So, you know, document databases is a great example, right? Uh, so MongoDB is the company I'm talking about, which is, which is interesting here because it has tried to do something that is not the primary focus of other businesses and haven't been. And then they sort of MongoDB got enough scale where they have become the default standard, right? Another company that you know, sort of I like to talk about, but so it's not like execution has been sort of, you know, makes is this uh, company called Confluent, where they're trying to be sort of the message passing interface for different applications that people use, right? And, and the vision there is that if you have different applications that you're using and you want to know what is happening in your enterprise, then you need this capability where the stick in the middle sort of takes sucked in information from wherever it gives you and gives you the intelligence of what is happening now across the stack, right? And this is a very difficult technical challenge to solve, which these guys at Confluent solved. And that, you know, and I, again, so that's a, so you have some technical capability that is difficult to replicate, right? That solves something that can be really valuable to businesses. So that's another opportunity that you know, and it's not that this sort of thing does not exist, but at sort of this scale that they are doing it, well, nothing off the shelf existed, right? So when they built it inside LinkedIn, because when they were, you know, Jay Krebs was an engineer and, and, and his colleagues who founded this company, they, they looked for stuff off the shelf and couldn't find it. So they went and built it. And then sort of it became the default. Now, there's an origin story and stuff like, you know, the default is, is the open source software that they built. It's used by, um, you know, 70% of Fortune 500. That's, uh, or Fortune 100. That's, that's a sign that has got wide usage. Now, the question is, can you sell your software as a service that you're offering or the free version? Um, you know, so you're offering this um, commercial version of it. Can you have the go-to-market actually show the return on investment? That's where this company is. But I think those are sort of things that can happen in software. Um, yeah, so same story with Salesforce and others. It's very difficult to replace. You know, you can't replace them, but, you know, coming up, with a better, just a better uh, service cloud would not cut it. Just like a better streaming service would not, like audio streaming service would not cut it. You need to do something, you know, something fundamentally different. Just a little bit better would not cut it. That's sort of my, but then the time comes into play for, for companies like, um, you know, the, the central nervous cloud. Consistent time is, can be pretty wide, depends on if you can realize it or not. Um, and another area that I like playing in is small software companies that operate in sort of, you know, fragmented markets. Let's say you mentioned Bitcoin software. This operates in sort of, you know, uh, human capital management. And it's a highly fragmented place. Uh, the payroll companies coming to this. This is highly fragmented. A lot of old software exists. And then if you have, if you offer something new and offer something that's gold, you can over time convert a lot of people who are using traditional solutions. When I said traditional solutions, you might find that a lot of companies actually use solutions that are built in-house that are very difficult to upkeep and then they're not keeping up with their growth, right? That's an easy sell because everybody needs payroll, right? But then what happens is as you become big enough, then you need to really innovate because now you're going to compete with those companies that are going to be providing payroll to big companies. That is sort of where Paycom is right now. It's that, that juncture where they're part to success in the future depends on making that transition. A lot of good stuff to chew on there. And one of the most innovative industries of all, enterprise software, 
Uh, everyone, always a pleasure to hear your insights and your views about this. Thanks for being on the podcast here today. Thanks for having me. The doc, Anirban Mahanti, a PhD in computer science. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed this edition of our seven investing podcast. We enjoy doing this. We want to share a little bit of you know our own research process and what goes into how we select companies and stocks that we're recommending on our seven investing site. Once more, seveninvesting.com slash subscribe if you would like to get started for just $1 today. We think that you'll enjoy seeing what's behind the curtain and not only our research process, but in each of our recommendations. My name is Simon Erickson. We are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7 Investing.